Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome the filmmaker and founder behind the Afropunk Film and Festival, a bike maker, tattoo artist, and all-around artist, James Spooner. James, how are things? Great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Of course. Well, I'd like to start off by asking, do you think that the uprising in the streets currently is going to lead to actual change? Does this seem different than other times for you? Um, that's a good question, right? Getting right into it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely impressed by, uh, by the protests and like, the amount of, of public... Um, uh, like the display of people being out on the streets, it definitely gives me hope for humanity in a way that uh, I'm usually pretty cynical about. Um, and what that means for actual change is, you know, it's a bigger question because, um, you know, we see things like... Uh, companies changing their, uh, you know, kind of covering their tracks and saying we see you and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, but then on the other, on the flip side, there are, you know, big announcements like the dismantling of the Minneapolis Police Department, you know. So um, it's, it's definitely interesting to, to hear, like, what used to be a fringe conversation about like the police and stuff becoming more mainstream where I'm having these conversations with my like 70 year old, uh, white uncle, um, you know, and they're, they're like actual conversations now, you know, so that's, that's a step in the right direction. Well, what would you like to see happen going forward with all of this? Um, I mean, Generically, like the end of white supremacy, that'd be pretty rad. Um, I'd like to not have like so much of my everyday uh, dictated by white supremacy. Um, and those, you know, and that's like just a huge, a huge request, you know. Um, so. You know what is what does that mean like, and how is that achieved on on a social and individual level? Those are like huge conversations, you know. Well, I'm curious, like when you when you're talking to your white friends, where do you steer them to really gather some more information? The ones that are a little bit more hesitant towards doing what I think is just a human right and just equality for everybody, but where do you steer the people that really aren't there yet? Um, well, I try to have, like, compassion for the fact that, like, most white people go, can go days, weeks, years without thinking about being white and what that means in a larger context. Um, in, in the way that I am able to, like, find that compassion is to uh, think about 
uh, or, or to to consider what it the fact that like I am a heterosexual male and I can go days, weeks, and probably not years, but I can I can go a very long time without having to consider my privilege as a man or as a uh, a heterosexual, you know? And, but I also am, I see myself as an ally and I'm somebody who is willing to be wrong, who is willing to learn, willing to adjust, and, um, and is angry and outraged by um, sexism and homophobia, um, both on a structural, systematic level and on, in my own personal life or coming out of my own mouth, you know? Um, so when I, when I talk to white people about race, I expect the same from them that I, that I give to, um, to groups of people who I don't identify with, but I support mm-hmm. that, if that makes sense. Of course. Um, so, you know, so, you know, there, so there's, Again, there's like these huge issues like, you know, police reform or dismantling, right? Defunding, that kind of thing. There's things like reparations and stuff like that. Just like for the last 20 years or more, when I, like, let me start over. Like when I have a conversation, I had a joke when I would, if I want to lose a white friend, all I have to do is start talking about reparation. And, like, it's been shocking to me that over this, like, uh, election cycle, the conversation about reparations is, like, a mainstream topic, you know? Mm. At least in the democratic world, right? And it's, like, that is, that's shocking to me. But what should be shocking to all white people is that reparations hasn't happened yet, you know? Um, so there's the, there's that kind of, uh, those big conversations and, and like things that feel like out of reach, but thankfully there are, uh, there are people who dedicate their lives to, to such topics, you know? And then there are like small everyday things where, like, why isn't there a Black History Month at my kid's school? You know, like, why do I have to champion for that, you know? Um, and, you know, and and having sitting, sitting there in the principal's office and having to take time out of my day in order to explain why this is important um, is something that white families don't have to do, aren't doing, like, you know, and, and when I'm able to explain those kind of things, sometimes it's, like, more uh, digestible. Like, oh, I got to just go home and do homework with my kid, and he had to go to the, to the office to talk to the principal because, you know, some other first grader told his daughter that he doesn't like her hair or her skin. You know, and it's like, when people hear that kind of stuff, they're like, oh, my God, is that still happening? You know, it's like, yeah, it's still happening. You know? 
do you think that Biden and people like that are, are going far enough in the Democratic Party? No. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, like, Biden is uh, a sad embarrassment. Um, he, you know, it's like— And I tend to it's agree. A, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge bummer that, like, that's the best that the, you know, the, the left can do, you know? And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Bernie. I was a big fan of, I, I am a fan of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, I want progressive change. I want, I want huge sweeping changes. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like, look, uh, when, uh, the, you know, when it comes, if there, if there comes a time in the next four years that a Supreme Court justice needs to be uh, appointed, I, much would, I would much rather have Biden have that job mm-hmm. than Trump, you know, like 100%. And, um, you know, and that's what I'm voting for, basically. It's like, I didn't, I don't like, I don't like Hillary Clinton, like, not at all. I don't, I don't think she's a nice person, you know? I wouldn't want to hang out with her. But she would have put two uh, people in the Supreme Court that could really make some big changes, and that would be, that's what we're voting, that's what, that's what we should be voting for. And and two people that aren't going to take the country back a whole bunch of notches. Exactly. I mean, you know, just the fact that we're still talking about uh, a woman's right to choose is insane to me. You know, it's like the same people who are who are uh, saying, like, as an American, you don't have a right to tell me to wear a mask. The exact same people who are saying as an American, you know, I'm going to legislate your uterus (laughs) bananas you know that's crazy well how much response do you still get for not listening to quote black music even though we all know it originated through the blues and what was it like growing up in new york and california being an african-american and having a passion for not just hip-hop you know i mean i'm a grown man in my 40s so like, I'm not in a situation where there is anyone who can tell me or challenge me on, like, on my blackness at all, but certainly not on, like, oh, you do, you're you doing, or, you know, that's some white people shit. Like, that conversation is so, like, boring and tired to me. And, again, being a grown man, I get to choose who's around me, you know? Um, but, uh, as a kid, as a teenager, all the way up until, you know, uh, my, uh, really until like, um, I made Afropunk, um, I certainly had to field those kind of questions. And, but the thing is, it's like, I've always like, well, I, yeah, I mean, I've always had, like, a mixed bag. Like, you know, I was into hip-hop before I was into punk as a little kid. And that was the weird thing. Like, 
being into, you know, being into Run DMC when everyone else was into Bon Jovi was problematic, you know, in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but then when I, uh, when I got into punk, like, yeah, I certainly had people, uh, black people questioning whether I am ultimately the question they're asking when they say like, why are you into that is, are you a traitor? Like if shit goes down, do you have our back? You know? And it took me a long time to understand that these questions around what is black and what is white, like in terms of, you know, black people don't square dance, black people don't ski, black people don't, you know, like these kind of conversations are really like what's ultimately being asked is if, if shit goes down, do you have my back? You know, because historically there's a, uh, there is a black person who is so enamored with white stuff that they reject black stuff. You know, that has never been me. So, um, I think that once I have the, what if, if, if I'm in a, a position where somebody is asking that question, I know what they're actually asking and I can usually, unless it's like a street assault, I can usually assure them that, like, I got your back, you know? Not only do I got your back, but I'm right here in the front line with you, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to take okay. you way back now. What were some of the formative artists in your youth that really shaped who you would become? And not just music. Like, if there was painters filmmakers, any artists, who who would you look at as really, yeah, I put them as, that's why I am the man that I am today? Interesting. Okay. Um, well, I think that, like, there's a couple lanes I can go in, you know? Like, there's, like, my personality, and uh, for better or worse, you know, like, I'm probably... Uh, at a very young age, I was, like, influenced by, like, sarcastic, defensive comedy. Um, so, like, you know, Mad Magazine's, uh, what is it, Snappy Answers to Stupid Questions. Like, that kind of thing has been, like, probably the bane of anyone who's a friend of mine or who's close to me is, like, knows that, like, I'm painfully sarcastic and, uh, and I use it as a defensive mechanism to like not deal with it. So, you know, that kind of thing, like I was obsessed with like, I don't know, you can't do that on television or, you know, I mean, I was definitely a sitcom kid and like learned everything, but I, I uh, came up like all my, uh, understandings of family and relationships and, whatever were all based in like those kind of 80s uh fantasy sitcoms which i've had to like unlearn for the rest of my life you know (laughs) um you know and then like you know getting in as i as i got into like uh middle school and started um hearing punk bands 
it's like, you know, I had a lot of anger as a kid who is, you know, I have like kind of the typical mixed race uh, identity issues. I lived in like a really shitty white trash town. I, um, my parents were divorced. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that I was angry about that I didn't have a grasp of my anger. Um, but punk rock really spoke to me. And, um, you know, and eventually that anger, like, translated into um, anger toward society. You know, it wasn't just my mom. You know, it wasn't just, like, you know, parents. But it was, it was like the police and the government and, you know, like, you know, all of these, uh, you know, all of the oppressive forces in the world. And punk rock really speaks to those, those issues. So, you know, I always like tell the story of like listening to a mixtape when I was like 15 um, with bands like Struggle and Downcast on them and uh, hearing these lyrics that were just like really uh, posing deep questions about the government and whatnot. And, uh, and I was just like blown away. I was just like, yes, this is what, this is what punk rock is about. You know, like how can I change things? And, you know, then subsequently learning about the DIY movement and having the empowerment of, like, learning from other kids that I can do things myself and my voice matters, um, reading other people's zines and, um, you know, even having, like, documentaries, like, Another State of Mind or something that, like, help push those messages. Like, those are all things that were really formative and got me to a place where in my early 20s, I could just be like, yeah, I didn't go to film school, but I'm going to make a movie and fuck it, you know? Well, would you say that the respect is finally being paid to bands like Fishbone, Vaginal Davis, Bad Brains? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was ever a moment where Bad Brains wasn't respected. True. Um, you know, Fishbone has its ups and downs because they have like a really great first record and then they have like some good songs throughout their career but there was also a lot of like kind of cheesy moments um I think Bad Brains had a couple cheesy moments too but you know I fought the 90s um and you know I don't know if Vaginal Davis is like a punk rock household uh, name but um what I am seeing is that there is, or there feels like there's an uptick in uh, POC punks and their um, confidence in being POC, you know? Because uh, when I was a kid, it definitely felt like there was a tolerance around being of color, but not, not, a, uh, not a pride of it in the punk scene. You know, um, it was more about like, I feel like a lot of uh, kids are of the state of like, you're cool, just don't remind us that you're black, you know, um, 
And now I see uh, that there are a lot more loud, vocal, like, punks of color. Um, and I've been to shows, I mean, par- partially because I'm in Los Angeles, where it's, like, very, like, primarily brown. And you can see, like, the white kids who hang out with the brown kids who are, like, you know, it's like I can almost see the wheels turning in their head, like, damn, I wish I was Mexican or something, <laughs> you know? So, you know, it, it feels like there's a change. Sometimes I talk to, I did an interview with uh, the band uh, Soul Glow the other day. There was an all-black band from Philly. And uh, they were kind of laughing at me because it was like, yeah, it's, it hasn't changed that much. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when you're standing on the outside, as I am, it's like a man in his 40s. Like, I go to shows, but I'm not, like, an active member of the community. I'm, like, in the back watching the show, and then I go home. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, are you keeping up with all the new artists still? Um, I wouldn't say all of them, but I, I mean, I do... I do try to pay attention to what's happening and there are bands that like um, are uh, that I listen to that that are out that are young kids now you know switching topics a little bit what led you into sculpting oh <laughs> that is a non-sequitur um. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true I there was going to be no good way of asking that question <laughs> but I I, yeah. I have been curious. Like you you had well, I mean, uh, you, you had showings in Seattle and some other places, correct? Yeah, I mean it's probably important for your uh, audience uh, to know that that was like uh, my sculpture career ended at like twenty three. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like a high school and uh, the, I don't know, four or five years of adulthood, but. Hey, I find um, that shit really cool. Anybody that's like, <clears throat> and, and I put it to, if you're a good tattoo artist, I feel you're a good artist in general. You could you could get behind a camera and make a great movie. You could get in front of a canvas and just come up with a great painting. I think good tattoo artists are good artists all around. So I find it incredibly fascinating that you were a sculptor as well. Yeah, I mean... That's interesting. I, I, I mean, tattooers definitely are, I mean, tattooers are a work for hire artists, you know, like, so we have to like learn from, I mean, we have to learn a bunch of different styles and we have to, you know, work with clients who achieve their, you know, make their dreams come true and stuff. Um, you know, and if that translates into other mediums, like I'm sure it is from person to person, but I've definitely never been somebody who's like super married to a medium. Um, so when I was in high school, I went to a school for art and I gravitated towards sculpture, um, probably because it was like more affordable than oil painting, but I just like the kind of like tactile, like really just getting in there with your hands and building something. Um, and I wanted to have 
a career as a sculptor when I was in my early 20s. Um, but I also didn't know anything about the world and certainly not anything about the fine arts world. So when I, uh, you know, most of my, I mean, all of high school and beyond, I was in New York. Um, and uh, so I'm like this wide-eyed, like, kid um, trying to get shows and galleries in Soho and they're just like, you know, said, like I, I drop off my slides and they, on one occasion, they literally were back at my house before I got, like when I got there, like the post office had <laughs> them over, so they got it all. So it was like the rejections were just, you know, and what I realized after a little while of being like, I was a party promoter and DJ and I would meet kind of like social life type kids and stuff and be like, Oh, this is like not really about whether you're talented. This is about like who, you know, what your, who your parents are, you know, like the fine arts world is, is very nepotistic and like, you know, socialite based and whatever. And they just, and the kind of sculptures I was making were like larger than life figurative stuff. It was, you know, just taking up huge amounts of space, you know, and that's finite in New York. So um, when I moved out of this, like, I had this huge loft in Greenpoint, and when I moved out of it into an apartment, I had to stop sculpting because I just didn't have room for it, you know? Um, and that's when I got into, like, doing a documentary because that's all like just on a computer in my room, you know? Well, when did you decide to make the Afropunk documentary? Can you give us kind of the story behind that production? Yeah. I mean, um, basically it, it came about when I was, I was starting to question a lot. Well, I should back up and say like, okay, so when I was like 22, I lived in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn, which at the time was still undergoing gentrification. Like it was still like heroin was still sold on my street. It was still uh, a mixed neighborhood. Um, but it was very rapidly becoming this like white space. And, um, I was hanging out and DJing and doing parties, uh, playing like soul music and like um, funk and disco and stuff, but to a largely white audience. And um, I started to question myself, you know, like how am I at a soul party and there are like no black people here but me? Um, and then I stumbled upon this. Um, party at Love Bar that was playing like a lot of the same music, but it was all black. And I just had this like moment. It just like really uh, resonated with me. And, and my friends I came with, they left and I just wanted to stay. And I just was just like, oh my God, this is like it. Around, you know, at the same time, I was like meeting some, I, like I saw this band called Pleasure Unit, which is like, Julio from TV on the radio was a singer and there are, and I was just looking at like, you know, here's these black guys and they're playing this music and 
just I just started to have all of these questions about like my identity and like what I was doing as a black dude hanging out in these white scenes and stuff. And then I started to get really angry at punk rock because in so many ways it raised me and it didn't um, really challenge me or challenge the scene wasn't challenging self to question race beyond fuck Nazis, you know? So fuck Nazis is great, but it doesn't do anything to address the things that I was actually going through at that time. Um, and that most black people go through. So I thought that I needed, I wanted to make a movie that would, um, be a critique of the punk scene and um you know and that was kind of the the impetus for the afropunk documentary well the afropunk documentary touches on a lot of issues in a very short amount of time was it conscious to keep the running time so short and would you ever go back to it now and do kind of a redux on it um it it was as long as it needed to be um like, I initially went out with a 73-minute version, and I don't even remember what I cut out. It's probably whatever's in the bonus features. Um, but it ultimately, I cut it down to 66 minutes, which is not even, like, a, uh, a time that makes sense for, you know, networks or anything like that at the time. But, um, yeah, it was just, like, this is how long the movie needs to be, you know? Um so, yeah, it's like, I don't think I was, I definitely wasn't in a place of, like, I mean, I, I don't want to say that I was, like, super naive to, like, story structure or whatever or anything like that. I think it does have, like, a three-act structure or whatever. But, um, you know, ultimately, I just made the movie that uh, that I needed to make, and it was the time that it needed to be. Um and then as far as, like, going back and, I mean, I I, I do uh, consider revisiting um, my story with Afropunk, but I don't think, but that's not the same documentary, you know, because Afropunk became something completely different and uh, commentary on that is more interesting than just a redo of the movie I already made. Okay, well, speaking of that, when you started the Afropunk Festival, did you ever imagine it was going to become what it is today? Or is that why you left <laughs> <No>. early on? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for those that don't know, Afropunk Day is a, is in, it's seven festivals, um, or it's a festival in seven different locations, five different countries. 60 to 100,000 people per festival. It's insane. And no, I, it, it could have never become that under my watch because there aren't that many people who want to see the band that fall under my Afropunk umbrella. You know, they had to open the umbrella so wide that like basically anything it can be Afropunk, you know? And um, that's, that's counter to the point, you know? So yeah, that is why I left it. It was, um, it was starting to get uh, 
I left after the first corporate sponsored festival. That festival, like, I was challenged by um, the needs of the sponsors um, to a degree that I couldn't compromise um, my integrity any further. And, um, you know, and that was still relatively small, um, you know, in comparison to what it is today. So I can't even imagine the amount of, like, um, of compromise that, ethical compromise that has to be made in order to make that festival happen. Well, would you ever start a, a new festival, a smaller festival, probably in Los Angeles now? Um, I wouldn't because I'm old and that's not for me to do. Um, but uh, thankfully, there is a new generation of kids who like totally picked up where I left off or sold out and are doing exactly what I would do um, if I was in my 20s, you know? And, um, and I'm like super proud to see that like, that all of these festivals are happening around the country. Um, and and when, when I've reached out to the uh, organizers and just told them like I, I love what they're doing and you know support it wholeheartedly and whatever. They're always like really um, excited to hear from me, you know, because in a large in a in a large way, and it's like this super funny irony is that like I created this thing, this thing that got so big and so mainstream that it gave them something to react against. And, you know, therefore create the thing that I wanted to happen in the first place. <laughs> well, after that, is that when you made your second feature, uh, White Lies, Black Sheep? No, I made that. Um, that movie came out in 2007 and I left Afropunk in 2008. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I was like, I was, uh, that movie came out, was a product of, uh, kind of just timing it's not necessarily even like a movie worth seeing it was just like i got i was nominated for this grant um and and i got the grant so i had the money to make a movie and i had uh you know but it was kind of like there i don't know if there's anything in the movie that is saying anything different or better than my documentary. It just kind of looks better because, like, I had, like, real filmmakers I was working on it with. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like that movie, I did a few screenings of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like after we did our, our premiere in Toronto, which was, like, a big deal. And I think I screened it, like, two more times after that and then just shelved it and moved on, you know. Well, what do you find is the hardest part of the filmmaking process? I don't know. Probably, like, fundraising or something. I don't know. Like, actually, like, I mean, it's actually making the movie, like, like, Afropunk and White Lies had completely different styles. Like, Afropunk, I was shooting, I was, like, a one-man team. I was shooting as I was editing 
And over like a two-year process, it was just very like, I, I was like relatively chill, you know? I'm just like, oh, I got, I finally got this person that, to, to interview or this band is coming to town and I'm going to interview them or whatever, you know? I just had to like have the wherewithal to like go do the interview. But it wasn't like um, a ton of scheduling and whatever. Whereas with White Lies, it was like, we're shooting everything in 20 days and like that's what you got you know and really having like a tight shooting schedule and it's exhausting and you know sometimes people are jerks or they're tired and you know there's fights on set and there's all kinds of things that like come up when you're working under that kind of stress you know I'm not super qualified to answer like all of those, those kind of questions because I've just had different experiences all the time but I am somebody who, like, can see, like, I can see a big project and I can, like, uh, break it down into steps. And then all I worry about is the steps that I'm trying to accomplish. And when that step is done, I do the next step. You know, it's like I have the whole thing in mind, but I don't get overwhelmed by, like, oh, my God, this is going to be, like, three years down the line, you know? Well, can we expect any more films from you in the future? Yeah, I'm actually, I can't talk about it right now, but I am pitching a uh, a project right now. Um, I actually have a meeting right after we get off of this um, with producers. So, you know, like, it's something that's actively happening, and as soon as I can talk about it, I will definitely be loud about it. I'm I'm excited to see it. So, <laughs> but you, you've been very vocal about voting, something that I appreciate. Even directing the Rock the Vote spots with Henry Rollins, do you see a path forward to finally getting young people and minorities to the ballot box this time around, or do you still think the candidates aren't doing enough to reach out? Hmm, that's interesting that you. I, w- I wouldn't say that I've been very vocal about voting. But you did do your homework and, and did see that that uh, spot. But I, I was actually working for a company that, like, was hired by Rock the Vote. So that was just uh, a job. But I do vote. I, I mean, I started voting after Obama or during, like, Obama's first run was the first time that I voted. So I did miss, like, two or three elections um, because I was, in my early 20s, and I was like, you know, fuck Bush, I'm not down with that. And I'm also not down with the other guy, so that guy was, you know. Um, but when Obama came around, I was like, you know what, I like this guy. Like, this guy, I actually feel like I was friends with, you know. Um, and then, you know, with the understanding that, like, this job is a sucky job, you know. Being a president is like, even if you're a good person with all the right politics, you still have to do sucky stuff. You still have to go to war. You still have, like, you still have to, like, be part of a system that oppresses people because that is the foundation of this country. So being the president of, of, the, found, of the country that that's the foundation of, you're bound to have make back choices. You know, and anyone who has critiques of Obama 
is rightfully so because there were some choices he had to make that sucked. But in my heart, I believe that if uh, I was able to sit him down, he'd be like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I wouldn't like, want to do that. But as a president, you know? And it's kind of like, uh, it's not like, you know, sometimes I'm really righteous and I'll be like, yeah, I would never, I would never have a job where, where I have to say, well, that's my job, you know, like being a cop, never be a cop because being a cop, your job is to do shitty stuff, you know, like you do good stuff, but you also do shitty stuff. And I would never want to be in a position to be like, well, I'm just doing my job, you know, you can't do that as a politician. It's like, if I wanted to be a comptroller or alderman or be on the school board, I'd have to make choices that I don't believe in because that's part of my job is like compromise and all this shit, you know? So, you know, when it comes to the president, I just want a, I want a person who is going to push for more good things than do bad things. And um, clearly, like I said earlier before, it's like when we, when the choice was between Hillary and uh, Trump, like, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be complicit in Trump's election. So I guess I have to go vote for this other person who I don't like, you know, but that was the right choice because look at what Trump has done and all the people who didn't vote all my friends who were like, fuck that shit because, uh, for good reason. Well, look at what we got, you know? And I think that a lot of them understood, like understood for the first time how bad it could be, you know, whether it's, you know, kids in cages or, uh, Kavanaugh or any of the other, you know, or this pandemic, it's like all of that stuff could have been avoided with Hillary, even though she's a black person, you know? So, um, so yeah, like I want, uh, like I want AOC to be the president, you know, like I want, like, I want my boy Mo from Cypher, who's the president of the working family party. I want <laughs> yeah. him to run. Hell you know yeah, I do it. Like, like, I want that. Uh, that's who I want. You know, I think that uh, I'll, you know, I'll certainly take Bernie or Elizabeth Warren because they're actually saying shit that I, that I agree with and I believe them. You know, they're not like pandering. They've actually always been about that job. Mm-hmm. So, but if it's Biden, it's like, yo, Biden's done a lot of crappy, I mean, he might be like the Democratic Reagan, for all I know. He's like a puppet who's like, whatever. And maybe there's, you know, like, my hope is that he'll, like, have Elizabeth Warren as the vice president. And then, you know, I don't hope that he dies. But, you know, it would be <laughs> all right if he did. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, you know. I feel like we're all hoping that he picks Elizabeth Warren, or at least I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, that would be that would be great. And then you know he's he's like old and senile, and you know maybe um, 
maybe she'll take more of a leadership role and uh, you know whatever i mean it's you know it's 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 hard to hard to really champion politics in this country when so much of it is corrupt you know and when like the good people really get uh don't get the chance they deserve which we've seen over and over again so why do you think but i'm but i'm also very cynical and like sometimes i listen to myself talk and i'm like dude you are so dark like And then I go, you know, and none of this is going to matter because, like, global warming is going to kill us all in the next century. So, whatever. (laughs) Why do you think that we're not seeing the kind of political uprising and anti-establishment music from the current bands like we saw through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? Or do you disagree with that? Do you think that there are bands that are trying to break to the mainstream and get bigger messages across? Guys like Rage Against the Machine in the past, or the only thing that comes to mind right now is Run the Jewels, and a little bit of what Childish Gambino did, but that was still like four years ago. Do you do you see any anybody stepping up to the plate? Um, I mean, I'm not a great uh, person to to talk about what's happening in mainstream music. Um, I've never really been. Even when I was a kid, even when I was in my 20s, I was not paying attention that much. So um, I do have a, I do have like a decent understanding of the record industry and how it works. So like in the 60s and 70s, like that music, the, the politicized music that was happening was available to the general public because there was a market, there was money to be made. Um, it, it wasn't like, you know, I've heard, definitely heard stories about the record labels really uh, pushing against Marvin Gaye um, for wanting to make an anti-war record. But uh, he'd, He'd had a career that was so expansive and such a hit maker that he could do what he wanted. And he did it, and it was the best thing that he ever did. And, you know, the record industry was like, great, we made money. Like, they don't care what is being said. It's a money-making business, you know? Now, the, like, downside of, like, you know, the whole MP3 like file sharing world um the fact that like music isn't a uh commodity in the way that it used to be makes record labels a lot less likely to take risks and um so if you think about like who all the biggest artists are these days most of them aren't saying anything because that's risky, you know? They're gonna, the industry is going to put their money behind somebody who's going to appeal to the lowest common denominator. And taking a political side is divisive. So let's not do that, you know? Um, I'm sure that there are, like, SoundCloud rappers 
who are doing something or saying something, I would hope. And they're obviously the outliers who are making, you know, who are making tons of money and reaching a huge audience. But from my cursory research of like listening to the bands or the, the, the rappers who have sold Drake level or have had Drake level of streams but are in underground circles, i.e. SoundCloud rappers, they are really not saying anything. You know, it's like a, a two minute song and all they say is Gucci over again. You know, so it's like, um, so I think, you know, it's like a generation, like the current generation doesn't have examples um, of successful artists who are saying anything. Um, and that's been the case for probably all of the 2000s, the last 20 years. Well, we have lots of writers on this show um, mm-hmm. that listen to this show. What inspired you to start building bikes and doing the community rides? So again, I do, I do ride a bike now. But there were a lot of years that I didn't, and I, and so I'll, I'll I, I don't want to claim that I'm uh, a uh, a cyclist. You know, I was, and I'll talk about that. Um, in my when I first moved to LA, I was like uh, thirty, and um, I was uh, I was riding a bike just to commute to work, um, and it broke something broke on it and I found out about a bike co-op and I went to it um, and like learned how to fix my bike and I was like I really enjoyed this and at the time I wasn't doing anything like super creative so I found like a pleasure in like building bikes I was like converting uh, you know bikes into single and and, uh, fixed gear and I was um, going, and this was like early 2000 or it was like 2009-ish. And around that time, like the um, kind of six-year explosion happened and there was like tons and tons of group rides. And I was going on these like, these, these bike rides that were like literally 300 people and there'd be like, you know, police helicopters like escorting us because we're literally stopping traffic for an hour, you know, and, um, and it was, it felt super punk and, uh, and I loved it, but I noticed right away that the demographic of the riders didn't match the demographic of Los Angeles. So I was talking to one of the organizers and, you know, like, how come there aren't more black people on these rides? And he was a white guy, and he was, and he was like, "Well, anybody's allowed to come," which is the same, you know, the whole, same stock answer that I heard in the punk scene, you know. And what I understood from Afropunk was that like black people are down to do shit, but you got to invite them. Like black people are like vampires in the way that they do not go places where they're not invited, you know, and. uh and that's the only way they're like vampires. Don't quote me and say that. <laughs> um, uh, but I, we we go where we're wanted. And as soon as I invited a black person to a punk show with the invitation that said Afro on it, they knew it was for them, and they came, and they came in droves. 
you know? People who are not even involved in punk, who are just like R&B girls, who are like, yeah, I'm interested in this, I'll come, you know? And next thing you know, they're in the, they're moshing, you know? So I knew that there are black people who ride bikes. I knew that it would be um, something that would be fun to do. So I organized, I, I met these two other black bikers and we uh, organized uh, what I called the Freedom Ride, uh, which had an AKA of Black Kids on Bikes, which ultimately became its primary name. It was more popular. Um, but we, uh, you know, so we did like, did like a monthly chill ride, you know? And, um, you know, and it was, it got up to like, I don't know, like maybe it was like 80 people and that felt like way too much, but like, you know, it was, a, we were getting a good cross-section of people, some people who just, like, would borrow an extra bike of mine to come with us, and other people who would, like, show up in spandex and be like, oh, wait, this isn't that kind of ride, you know? Like, <laughs> um, you know, but it was ultimately an opportunity for Black folks to hang out together, and because everything Black people do is political, it was inherent. It felt inherently political when you see, like, 30, 40, 60 black people riding through Watts. We get one reaction, you know? And so all of these people are like, holy shit, like, yay, and, like, whatever, right? Or riding through Beverly Hills or Bel Air or something, and you get a whole other reaction. And in both cases, they're super political, and it wasn't even... I understood that, but it wasn't, that wasn't the intention because, you know, it, it was, it was like the, I don't know, like, like a funny statement. Like how is, how are people on bicycles a threat? You know, like we're just riding bikes. It was like, we might as hula hooping. Like what, what could be less, uh, you know, threatening, but we definitely had like police escorts when we were, when we rode our bikes through Garfield Hills. You know, what I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know that went on for a couple years. Um, I had a kid, and I was tattooing, and uh, our bike rides were always on Sunday. And I picked up a shift on a Sunday, and I had like a two-year-old, and one thing led to another, and I just kind of stopped riding. And but the, the bike rides had continued. Um, they slowed down, but they continued, and there's still like black kids on bikes is still a thing. Um, even during the pandemic, they're doing like, uh, social distance rides and challenges and stuff to just get people exercising. And, uh, I've recently put a new bike together and I, and I've been out riding and stuff as well. Well, speaking of the tattooing, how was the tattoo business going? What kind of an impact did uh, COVID have on it? Oh, it's done. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't tattooed since March 20th. And uh, I don't anticipate starting up again until, I mean, who knows when this thing is going to be over. But, um, I mean, I just read that California is going to go to have another lockdown in a couple days. So, um, you know, we're just kind of, the tattoo industry as a whole is pretty much just sitting on its hands. Um, and... Uh, and I didn't really, I didn't expect it, you know, like when COVID was happening in China, 
I like ordered a ton of product because I figured it's probably maybe manufactured in China. So I just wanted to get it before uh, there was like a lockdown in shipping or something. Yeah. But I didn't even anticipate that it would get to the United States, you know? And so now I'm sitting on like hundreds of dollars worth of like tattoo equipment, but I can't do anything. It's like, you know, I can't be in a closed room with a person for three hours. Like, it's just not responsible. So, <laughs> well, finally, <laughs> what can we expect from you coming up? Well, um, uh, so we didn't talk about my my comic, my graphic novel, and uh, so I have a graphic novel called The High Desert that is uh, about. It's a memoir. It's my it's my middle school memoir. Uh, my first like introduction to punk and learning what uh, learning the power of punk and about DIY and um, it's really like kind of a coming of age story about my identity and all of the all of the things that people know me for I guess um, and uh, I've been working on it for a couple of years I'm all drawn it's all it's all written and drawn it's like halfway shaded and right before i got off the phone with you or right before i got on the phone with you i uh, signed with a really amazing agent um who is gonna we're gonna start you know pitching the publishers and whatnot so I don't have a specific like release time or anything because we haven't gotten there yet, but um, I actually am really excited about, about the project and, uh, you know, it's, it's future release. So if anybody is interested in like seeing uh, excerpts or whatever, um, my Instagram, uh, Spooner's No Fun, is, uh, has like a lot of Well, James, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Your work has a true voice and such an educational purpose. We need more figures like you, and I hope that we see more because of innovators like you. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, can I tell you something else? Yeah, of course. This is like, it doesn't have to be in the podcast or anything, but... Oh, it's all good. I was just, I was just, uh, I really wanted to, uh like give you a shout out for interviewing the um a guy who played Crunchones and Rad. <laughs> Bill I I've been a big big fan of Bill Allen my entire life, so Well I have like a kind of a funny story about about Rad and um so when I was like um eighteen or nineteen I went on this tour uh, I went on tour with this band called Breakwater from uh, Victoria uh British Columbia. Yeah. And um, they were like obsessed with rad. <laughs> like, it, I, it was, they, they brought a, each one of them had their own copy that they brought on tour with them. <laughs> one, of, one of them had like the uh, television version that has like you know, some different scenes, you know, how they would... It's, they like, would like, it's like 35 seconds of, of extra footage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, he had that copy, you know. 
and um, we would like go like they they would play a show and they would have rad open for them. Like, they would all, you know, so it'd be like a bunch of kids watching rad before their show. Um, and, uh, like they had spray painted, I heart Clue Jones on the side of the van. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was one kid in the band who, uh, he was just the antagonist of the band. And I was sitting down with them. I'll never forget. We were all sitting on this grass lawn and they were getting interviewed for like some scene or something. And, uh, it got to the point at the end of the interview was like, is there anything more you'd like to say or any, you know, any final words? And each one went around and kind of said their thing. And then the kid, the antagonist was like, fuck crew Jones. And before he could even get crew out of his mouth, he was, they were beating him up. Like he literally had a foul lip and a black eye. <laughs> Ah, uh, so good. Yeah, so I have like, and, and oh yeah, and then so they went on to be called this other band. They went on to be called the Republic of Freedom Fighters. But there was this brief moment in between where they started a band called Miranda, um, named after Hollywood Mike Miranda from the Kudzuri. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. So when you know, I was looking through your like list of of people and I, so I emailed you and said that uh, I was I was honored to be on that list because you have all of these like really um, like fantastic filmmakers and then I just see that dude and I'm like yes <laughs> this is my guy right here like you know I was I, I went from being like yeah I'll do another interview to being like yes <laughs> <You know? laughs> So, um, yeah, so I just wanted to, like, I thought you might appreciate those those rad stories. Oh, I, I definitely appreciate the rad stories. Oh, well, it, it's funny. I'm about, as soon as we're done this, I'm about to go camping about four miles away from where they shot it. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Where Where is that? So right outside of, well, it, Rad was also shot in Calgary, where I live, but right outside of Calgary, okay. there's like this little suburb, excuse me, called Cochrane, and uh -huh. they have like a big BMX track and everything. That's where like the primary film was shot. So we're, I'm just okay. going camp at like literally four miles from that uh, BMX track. From fucking hell, from fucking hell track, man? Like, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it pretty much like, Hell Track doesn't exist now, but where they built it, it's it, uh -huh. it does have a BMX track now. So that's hilarious. And like, you know what broke my heart was um, when uh, uh, Lori Laughlin got in got in trouble for um, <laughs> you know getting her daughter her daughters into that school. I was like, yeah. oh no, because <laughs> I've always just had like a soft spot for her, you know from the bicycle boogie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, hey, I love that you even know what Rad is. That's awesome. Yo, Rad and Thrash... I'm literally wearing a Thrashing Oh, Thrashing right is like the those. fucking shit. We can talk about thrash. We can have a whole fucking episode on Thrashing. I that love... Seriously. I love that movie. I had this, um... This, uh... Moment when... When I moved to, uh... Okay, so like, do you remember in Thrashing when they go to um, Venice Beach and and uh, what's his name? 
what's the main dude's name? Uh, Josh Brolin? Yeah, I can't remember his, his yeah, name. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying movie, to think but, of his yeah character's name. Um, but anyway, so he like he like skates. He starts to skate into like dagger ter- territory, and his friends like, dude, don't go into dagger territory. He's like daggers, whatever, and he like skates in, and then somebody like flicks a cigarette at him, and it's like, beat it, you bow jerk. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to like set that in your head. So then I uh, when I first moved to I was going to move to L.A. I was still in New York, and I was calling around to some various friends in L.A. to kind of figure out where I should move and whatever, you know. And so they're telling me all the different parts. Oh, well, you could try Echo Park. It's really, like, affordable. You could try Silver Lake. You could, you know, like, Hollywood, you know, good for these, whatever. You know, they're going through all the, you know, Venice Beach, whatever. And then they're like, you know, or the valley, like the valley is really good. And I was like, oh, the valley, no way. I'm not going to be a Val jerk. You know, like, I was already like, no way. I am a dagger. I'm not a ramp local. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, to this day, it's like, um, I have a scene in, uh, in my, in my comic where I'm like, Do you skateboard yourself? I don't now. I mean, I, I definitely had like a few years in my as a kid where it was like my entire life, and I definitely, I guess you know, kind of going back to your original question about like uh, artists that like really were huge for me. You know, I, I never really considered the skaters, but like skateboarding was just so formative. Like eleven and twelve, and you know, like. It's like, it, it seems, it's funny because I have a 10 year old now and I'm like, I wonder, you know, if like Stranger Things is going to be as, like, as important to her as an adult as, uh, you know, like Animal Chin was to me or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like, um, it's, like, it's oh, so funny. Out. It's like literally the reason why I am a pump rocker is because of Ohio on on my dash in in my car i have uh have you seen him in the animal chin uh picture so yeah <laughs> yeah it's those things are huge i mean that's the thing about like being a kid again you know again it's just like the stuff i, I really am i'm really interested to see if like my daughter will be in her thirties or forties talking about like Billie Eilish in the way that like I talk about black flag or if she, you know, going to talk about stranger things in the way that we're talking about thrashing or whatever, you know, it's, what have you noticed about your daughter's tastes? Like, have you, what have you picked up on? Is music like not a big currency anymore? Is she like really into film? That kind of thing? No, I mean, she, she, uh, you know, before the pandemic, she would, in the morning, like, she she kind of, like, has, like, an hour where she's awake before me and stuff, and she would always just be listening to music. And left her own devices at this point. She really is just, like, in the pop music, you know? She's and about to be 11. And, um, 
you know, be, do, because of me and my partner, like, uh, she can point out a Clash song or, the, you know, she knows the difference between the Ramones and the Clash and she knows who, like, she can hear, oh, this is uh, The Cure or this is uh, Choosing the Banshees or whatever. Like, she, um, you know, and when we have, like, these fun moments where, like, you know, she sings along to uh, the Misfits or, or uh, Battle Tendencies or whatever, you know. But, like, it, music hasn't become, like, a... She's not at the age where, like, it's a subculture yet, you know. Um, but I see her gravitating towards the creepy. Um, like, she's totally... Like I said, she's, she's Billie Eilish. She's Stranger Things. Like, she... Definitely, excuse me. Definitely, like we showed, we shared Culture Guys with her like a few months ago, and she was like, "Oh my god, it's my new favorite movie!" Like she's <laughs> definitely into, like she's gonna surpass me in a matter of years on like what she can deal with in terms of scary movies and stuff. Um, like I have faith that she's gonna be a weirdo. She is a weirdo, you know like what that will translate into in terms of like cultural currency. I don't know. You know, it's definitely, uh, of course, you know, as a, as a punk, I want her to be punk, you know, <laughs> or God, you know, like she, she had this moment where she like, when she was like nine, I have a comic about it where she, um, she came out of her room with like all her colored clothes and like, just was like, you can donate these. I'm God now. <laughs> and I was like, my heart just like broke in the best way. Like I was just like, yes, you know, but that only lasted like a year. She was just, I think she was just really trying to impress my partner. And like, um, you know, it's like, she's still affected by what other kids think. And, you know, so it'll take, it'll take a little while before she's like, you know, fully like I'm this, you know? Mm-hmm. And some kids never do that, you know? It's like, there's a, there's a whole mainstream that, like, you know, they listen to new kids on the block when they're my age in middle school, and they grew up, and they're just not, you know, whatever. They're not, they're just regular adults, you know? <laughs> you know, we're the weirdos who, like, care about all these subcultures and stuff, Yeah. You know? <laughs> Well, doing your comic book now, do you think like when you were uh, doing zines back in the day helped you get that passion to do comic books now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all related. I think, you know, like I credit zines more than anything else for giving me the confidence um, to have a voice, you know? Like when I was 17 and I did... uh, zine called kidney room and i would get letters like physical letters every couple days from people who have read it and who like you know became vegan because of whatever i wrote or you know wanted to know if like calcium carbonate was vegan or wanted to argue about you know abortion or whatever it was it like it made me have a a sense that like my words matter in a way that like when at that same age in high school, you don't have, you don't get that. 
I didn't get that feedback from like teachers or other students, you know? So, you know, once, once, if I, if I give any like love or credit to punk, it was that like, it told me at a very early age that I can just do whatever the fuck I want, you know? So I can be a sculptor. I can make a movie. I can be a tattoo artist. I can make a comic all having never gone to school for any of that, you know? And if I one day am like, yeah, I want to be a dentist, I'm not going to just start drilling teeth, but I will, I do have the confidence to be like, all right, well, yeah, I'm 50 years old and I'm going to go to medical school now. Like, I, I could see that, not, not that I want to be a dentist, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I could see that that, that uh, kind of audacity exists within me because of hunger. Is is there anything sparking your interest right now that you really just want to go like put your hands on and try? Um, I mean, I'm, right now I'm like I'm really into doing the comic, and I'm also uh, trying to raise funds for this for this film. So that if if both of those go the way that I want them to, like that's definitely the next like easily the next three or four years of my life um you know and i'll always when i'll always have tattooing you know once the pandemic is over um which is a great a great like it would be great if that was my kind of like in between job you know but you know it's like i like writing i feel like i could conceivably you know write for tv or whatever i don't know it's like i just like i said in the beginning like i'm just i don't i'm not married to a medium and i'm really comfortable with starting from scratch you know i'm i'm honored that you join this roster because i really am trying to get people that i find interesting and i i hope that it brings it to a, a bigger audience so Thank, right on, man. Thank yeah. you again for coming on. Right on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To keep up with all things James Spooner, head over to his Instagram account at Spooner's No Fun and check out his documentary Afropunk over at afropunkfilm.com. This concludes our broadcast day.